वेलकम टू सिंह टॉक सिंह टॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टूडे डिस्कस द निशेज एंड मोनोपलीज विल थिंक अबाउट निशेज एंड मोनोपलीज एंड द लिमिट्स इंटर रिलेशनशिप्स एंड इम्प्लीकेशन अवर निशेज कंस्ट्रक्टेड आर ऑल मोनोपलीज बैड How do these concepts juxtapose with the concepts of efficiency, capital, scale, and aging? How do species exert their control over their environment and enhance their fitness? Why do we see centralization of resources or power in various contexts? Why do some industries and systems have winner-take-all characteristics? Can there be successful strategies to challenge monopolies? Can niches grow into monopolies? and is the long term tendency of various systems towards the equivalent of monopolistic competition we are pleased and privileged to have two sin talkers with us here today dr deepak malgan he is an ecological economist and a chemical engineer he is on the faculty of iim bangalore and Dr Karthik Shankar he is an ecologist with ISC Bangalore and is currently the director of Atri in Bangalore Deepak, why don't we set the ball rolling with you um, at a somewhat unusual place at the uh, notion and concept of scale? How do you think of scale in the context of niches and monopolies? So before we start talking about niches, mm. I want to try and understand what are the ontological foundations, right, of of these concepts. I mean, when are you able to talk about niches? I mean, when every time we talk about niches, there there are certain ontological assumptions that we make right and the most important one obviously is that there is a system let's call it a which is embedded inside another larger system b right so and once you start with this foundational notion of something that is embedded inside the other uh, you you get to niches you can you can start talking about uh, monopolies of proportion so when when a system is embedded into uh, or in another uh, system the most obvious question to then ask is how large is the smaller system relative to the larger system that's that's the question of scale right and uh, you can actually ask three different kinds of questions right when the the simplest one to ask is of course how large is a relative to b I mean, at least, at least in theory, uh, it's 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 a it's an empirical question. You can go out and uh, look at the world and try and ascertain uh, what scale. Sure. Second, you might uh, ask, how large can A be relative to B? Right. I mean, I mean, are there are there constraints on uh, what uh, and uh, how the smaller system uh, can grow relative to the larger system? It may be larger or smaller than smaller. The, so, than the first. so that 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 that's that's an important uh, question to ask. But in many ways, uh, 
And then something that I hope we will shell for at least the first part of our conversation uh, mm -hmm. this afternoon uh, is to ask the normative question, how large should the smaller system be relative to the larger system, right? When, because we can, we can at least logically partition out uh, empirical questions from uh, the more uh, normative The moment you questions. ask a normative question, Deepak, it assumes that one can do something about it. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, when you, when, uh, when, when you ask a should or ought to be a question, uh, you are A, uh, trying to ascribe certain uh, value to this uh, proportion. And uh, obviously, you're talking in terms of I, I like a certain proportion. I do not like a certain proportion. And if you don't like a certain proportion, you want to be able to go from what you don't like to uh, what you like. Sure. So, so that, I mean, obviously, I mean, that, that, that's by definition uh, a normative uh, judgment. Sure. Right, so I uh, and, and to me this is this is important, and then this is uh, not immediately obvious. Uh, I mean, our uh, uh, co-panelist today is an ecologist, so I mean, I, in 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 many ways this is like preaching to the choir, if you uh, will. Uh, but it's not immediately obvious to everybody that to be able to talk about niches, you need this ontological foundation. I mean, there's a reason why uh, economists, for example... Why, why is it not obvious? Uh, let me give you an example. For example, uh, economists would find this uh, rather strange. I mean, uh, economics 101 textbook model of what the uh, economy looks like. Uh, your economy is not embedded in anything else. Right? Right. I mean, it's, 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 it's a free-floating uh, entity. Right. I mean, if you remember your basic economics uh, textbook, the first time you uh, pick up any economics textbook, I mean, even even at uh, high school level economic textbook, I mean, you, you just I've, have the circular flows of... I've never picked up an economics textbook. You've so. never picked up an <laughs> economic textbook. That, that's, that's probably why you, you became an ecologist, right? So uh, the uh, market is not embedded in anything else, right? It's, it's not embedded within the larger... Uh, biophysical system, ecosystem, what have you, or it is—it's not also embedded in the larger political social system, right? I mean, it's—it's it's an independent entity. Uh, if you start with this ontological, but so, are, so are many other things, right? The state, so for example, things. the state, for example, is probably sure. somewhat independent and not really contained within anything. So you can so so. Uh, the point that I'm trying to make is the uh, ontological starting point is important. I mean, to be able to talk about niches, uh, you need to agree that you have a system that is actually embedded in, in, in some larger system. Right. I mean, I mean otherwise, it's, it's hard to talk about uh, niches, right? I sure, mean, so that, that, sure. that, that, that's sort of uh, the beginning. So, yeah, we, I think we'll elaborate on that deeper as we go along. Sure. What is a niche for you, Karthik? And it, it looks like there's an element of fundamental and realized niche from the, from the way Deepak is talking about it. What's, what's niche? What's niche for you? What is, and does the word monopoly, for example, have any sense to you as an ecologist? Yeah, let me start by responding to to Deepak, and I and I think it's he's absolutely right that he you know kind of used the word uh, preaching to the choir, but this this is a choir that that doesn't even think about the fact that it's a choir. I mean, the the very foundation of the word ecology itself, you know, uh, internalizes the idea that something is embedded in something else. Ecology is the idea of the of the house of a of an organism, right? So right. There's, there's the embedding of a in b in in the definition of the term ecology itself, right. and so our starting point for for niche is that that is that's a central assumption of our of our discipline. Uh, so uh, we we do as as the core acknowledge that. Uh, but I want to go one step further with this with the with the idea of uh, of of scale before I uh, 
uh, of, sure. of relationship before I answer your question, which is that the size of A relative to B, uh, and not just, I think, in ecology, uh, can be along multiple axes. It's uh, not the only dimension. It's the, the uh, size scale, is... Size, size is not the only dimension. No, the size is the the size is the is, is the point, mm. but the the difference in size could be Absolutely. along one one dimension or or, or another. Such as what? What do you mean? Um, so, for example, uh, I could you know one could be so as an ecologist, I could say that you know one one can have a, a, a think of niche in terms of of physical space, mm -hmm. where one is thinking of size very literally. One can think of it as physiological space, and one is thinking of temperature. So one could be occupying a very small part of the of the the size of or the the potential size even along uh, let's say a temperature axis could be uh, very small, uh, and uh, along another axis could be potentially very large. Right. Um, but to take that. You know, to take that as a stepping stone to answer your question, uh, what one is saying also, and what you know, this this the uh, can, should, and does occupy, uh, you know, in terms of of a uh, embedded in B, uh, is internalizing the idea of uh, of fundamental and realized niches in ecology, and fundamental niches are the space within B that a can occupy and right. realizes the space that it does occupy. Right. Uh, we how don't difficult? often get into should, but <laughs> right. how how difficult, Karthik, is it to figure out or know actually what are fundamental niches or what are is is it is it practically theoretically difficult for you as a? It's it's practically very hard. I mean, because uh, fundamental niches are uh, niches that would be occupied in the absence of a whole range of biotic and abiotic constraints. Uh, so abiotic in the sense of um, uh, let's say physical barriers, right. right? So maybe I didn't get to point B because there was a there was a mountain in between. Right. Uh, that's why it's not part of my realized niche. Or there's a predator or a competitor, which is a biotic constraint. So uh, with most organisms, except those that you can experiment on, uh, to actually you know measure what one might think of as a fundamental niche is is very very hard. So there are computational models now that 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 give you you know, a very broadish sense of what a fundamental niche might be, but, uh, you know, to measure it in practical terms is is, is hard. It's, it's, it's useful as a theoretical concept, but... Sure. Uh, and and do most organisms actually occupy niches or it's, it's, it's a more arcane concept than that, if you know what I mean? Like, are most organisms able to live or inhabit a very, very vast range of um, dimensions, if you know what I mean? All organisms are occupying some, niche or the other. some, you know, dimensional space, uh, and I, I, I think I uh, uh, described it as uh, to quote uh, the very, very famous uh, ecologist uh, Evelyn Hutchinson, um, mm. uh, uh, what might be called an n-dimensional hypervolume, mm. and what that basically means is that you know, if you think of uh, temperature, for example, as one dimension. Uh, Water as a second dimension, uh, then you can have three-dimensional space, which is you know you add you add a third parameter and it could be you know maybe salinity for uh, you know uh, marine organisms. So right. that's three dimensions, and we can visualize three dimensions. But niches can be in any number of dimensions. I mean, they can be resource dimensions, biotic dimensions, you know, uh, physical space dimensions, and so on. So so he said it's basically it's the space that it occupies in in all of those. N dimensions, uh, right. and he, he called it a hyper hyper volume. So right, that's right, the right. 
Uh, and what is a monopoly? Does that make sense to you at all? As a as a, it's it's not a term from ecology. Uh, well, it should be. Uh, mm-hmm. It could be. Uh, organisms sequester niches. Uh, organisms compete with each other. Uh, there are biotic interactions. Uh, they may, uh, you, you know, there may be mutualistic interactions. There may be predator-prey relationships. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, organisms are individual organisms are vying to have to maximize their fitness to right. pass on the most number of genes right and so every single and i don't mean species every single individual organism is trying to put down the most number of surviving offspring so in a sense every organism is is vying for you know a monopoly of a sort uh at a collective level, at one, what one might think of as a species level, some organisms are doing that better than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have what we call relative abundance models. So if you measure the number of, say, plants in a in a forest, uh, you're much, much more likely to find that if there are 100, if you count 100 individuals, uh, you know, 60 of them might belong to, you know, a single species. And, right. you know, right. fewer and fewer to the remaining ones and a large number of rare ones uh, at the end. Uh, so, you in any community that you pretty much any community that you look at, you will find you know skewed abundance patterns, and there'll be a few very common species and many many more rare ones. So so yes, I mean there are species whose uh, uh, abilities to adapt to the environment and historical contingency have led to uh, what one might call a monopoly of a sort. And is it possible for niches to become monopolies? In the long run, over several iterations and so on. I would think that. Well, I, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna defer that question and come back to that when, when you know, Deepak's had a chance. What do you to think of that, Deepak? Is it? So, so let me first respond to uh, uh, Karthik's. I mean, I'm actually uh, very grateful uh, you brought up uh, hypervolume because it gives me uh, a segue into uh, sure. how uh, ecological economists. Uh, th- so, e- ecological economics has been uh, very influenced by uh, Hutchinson's ideas. Mm. I mean, in 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 many ways, uh, when when thinking about scale. So, you're absolutely uh, right. I mean, it's it's not about any one single dimension. And then, first of all, uh, it's it's important to note that scale might not even, and and, and I use this very uh, advisedly, uh, might not even be a cardinal quantity, right? I mean, something that you can actually uh, go out and uh, measure. So let me uh, illustrate this with a very uh, basic uh, sort of example, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I mean, let's let's now uh, also try and uh, bring in. Uh, the human species into uh, the uh, conversation, right? So consider uh, two subsystems, the human uh, human system and uh, the larger uh, biotic, abiotic, uh, uh, biophysical uh, system, sure. right? So uh, let's take, take two, two different uh, forests. I mean, say one in uh, temperate latitudes and one, say, in uh, tropical uh, latitudes. Right. Right, and uh, for the moment, assume that in both of these uh, places, exactly the same amount of uh, uh, timber is generated each year, right? I mean, so the net. Uh, let's assume that for for the patch of forest that you're looking at, uh, of the one, same one, type of timber. Not, you can you can even assume same type of timber. I mean, I mean sure. that that's that, that's really not possible. But uh, uh, let's let's for the. Uh, I'll I'll come to that. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm sure. going to talk about what what 
do you mean when you say uh, same type of timber? I mean, at 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 some level, yes. I mean, if you look at it uh, in terms of counting atoms of carbon, yes. I mean, I mean, I mean yes. I mean, they're quantitatively uh, the same. But uh, the real question is, what's the qualitative difference between uh, these two forests? I mean, further assume that in each place, uh, the human economy uh, places similar demand. Right? I mean, let's assume that. Uh, 20% of timber that is generated each year in both of these sites is harvested uh, by uh, human societies. Mm -hmm. uh, can I then conclude that the scale of the economy relative to uh, the forest ecosystem in both places is the same? No, I, could, I, I, I simply cannot. Uh, for precisely the reason that uh, you brought up. I mean, what about uh, the qualitative uh, aspect? Right. So the way ecological economists have uh, uh, tried to internalize what uh, Karthik uh, talked about uh, as hypervolumes from uh, Hutchinson uh, and his uh, followers is to make a distinction between stocks and funds. Stocks and so funds. Stocks and funds. I mean, stocks are countable. Right? I mean, you, you, you can go out and count stocks. I can go out and count uh, carbon atoms in sure. uh, the temperate forest and in the tropical forest. Uh, they are the same. Sure. But uh, what is really interesting from a scale perspective is the fund. And fund is a particular configuration of stocks. Mm -hmm. right? And, and, and uh, given that the particular configuration could be different in these two sites, even though the measured scale if you will, is the same. I mean, if you, if you came up with a simple Both of scale, them have the same number of carbon atoms, same but the configurations Carbon are atoms ha harvested from the forest uh, over carbon atoms that are generated every year, even if this metric is the same, it does not necessarily mean uh, that the size of the human economy relative to the uh, carrying ecosystem is the same in uh, both places. You're because the, the funds are different. The underlying uh, fund could be uh, different. So what is, is fund a qualitative concept? Fund, fund, fund is a particular configuration of stocks. How do you measure it? Uh, is, is it fund by definition is an ordinal quantity? I mean, I I I, I cannot uh, measure funds in with with uh, a cardinal uh, number that I can put on a number line. I can only talk about uh, ordinal uh, sort of relationships between uh, the two. Uh, to give you an even uh, a more intuitive example uh, to drive home the point, the crucial difference between uh, stocks and uh, funds, uh, something that uh, you and I have uh, done in the past, uh, is consider uh, your automobile, right? I mean, the, the car that uh, brought us here. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a stock of uh, plastic, aluminum, steel, uh, what have you. Yeah, uh, but it's also a fund of transportation services. Yeah, right. I mean, say, say, and it's uh, the specific you, configuration of parts that actually makes it a configuration car. Uh, that 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 defines uh, the fund. I mean, let's say you uh, meet with a bad accident and your car car is completely uh, total. Nothing happens to the stock. So, the, Deepak, the stock how does this link to the concept of niches? Because niche, the the the, the point that uh, Karthik was very forcefully making, and an important uh, one is niche. And then, if I were to use my ecological economics language, uh, niche is uh, fundamentally uh, a fund concept and not a stock concept, right? And then, so, so it's uh, configurational. Not a lot of what uh, uh, he and I uh, do in our day jobs is to try and figure out a mapping between the stock space and the uh, fund space, because when I mean, stock is what you can measure. 
right so uh, so what what are these uh, uh, mapping i mean how do you map uh, the stock space uh, to uh, the fund space and and, and it's 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 hard i mean this this is what makes uh, understanding uh, nature's hard and this is why uh, your question about uh, when does a particular system uh, become a monopoly is 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 hard to answer right i mean it, it it's quite possible that at the same level of measured cardinal scale uh, a particular system is already uh, uh, right what what you might describe as a monopoly uh, but in a different uh, fund con- configuration it isn't a monopoly right very helpful for me to understand but it you know as you was as you was talking it also occurred to me that it's um uh you know the configuration funds being configurations of stocks uh is is not very far from the you know aristotelian ideas of causation so you know, his stocks are very similar to what he would consider material causes which is you know the material of which stuff is made uh and then it's made by of course there's an efficient cause mm. um and then there's the formal stock formal yeah. cause which really is the fund which is the 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 shape the configuration that it takes now where biologists uh, evolutionary biologists go one step beyond those three is that we also have a final cause uh, and the final cause is What the purpose purpose for which it was made mm. uh in very human terms the car was made to carry people around right. in evolutionary terms it was made the the final cause is the evolutionary survival you know uh, causation and it's interesting between aristotle and 1700 or so uh, there was no talk of final causes because you know once christianity had sort of spread through europe final causation was all ascribed to you know to god uh Francis Bacon in 1500 and something or the other said uh uh final causes are like vestal virgins they are dedicated to god and they are barren <laughs> so you were not considered to be a good scientist if you worried about fi- if you asked this if you asked the why question so in some sense I, you know the evolutionary the the, the, the early uh, uh, growth of evolutionary thought has had a very you know uh, formative influence on 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 science itself as a whole oh, absolutely of, uh, absolutely you know, absolutely because i mean i mean i think i think i think to this day uh, there's a great deal of confusion between aristotelian uh, final cause and uh, teleology right, right. I and mean, so i mean so when those two are uh, really different but uh, uh, often times i mean if you're a beginning graduate student in uh, science when I mean, you're told oh stay away from the t word right i mean but uh, uh, right. that does not necessarily uh, imply uh, that you ought not to uh, be inquisitive about the final cause uh to but tell me something karthik once a niche has been constructed successfully and you know an organism or a species is thriving well in it is is, is there a tendency to move closer to it becoming a closed system rather than an open system and of course one understands that there's no such thing as a totally closed system but um right so uh if by that you know the way that i would interpret that question is that is that uh species have um and i'm going to say adapted rather than con- constructed because there's sure. a whole new field of uh, of uh, ecology that's looking actually at whether species uh, go beyond adapting and actually modify to create a niche for themselves so there's a whole school of niche niche construction mm-hmm. uh, research in the last decade or so mm-hmm. uh, which is quite different from the niche adaptation research that's sure. you know more than 200 years old uh so when i interpret the question you know when when a species has adapted to a niche uh how much capacity does it have to move uh because once you've constructed a niche or adapted to a niche you want to maintain it right. you want to maintain 
well, you're constrained by by genetics. That mm-hmm. uh, you're constrained by the fact that the, the the genes that allow you to 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 thrive in that particular niche are being passed on from one generation to the next. Uh, but you have you have species that that are specialists and those that are generalists. So are niches inherited as well? Niches are inherited because your your uh, the entire range of your 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 spatial uh, extent, your physiological tolerance all all of many of these are are inherited right uh, so niches are not inherited as physical space right uh, niches may not be inherited as physical space but niches but but your niche as that n-dimensional hypervolume is is inherited yeah, absolutely uh, that's a heritable quantity uh, and the question then becomes how much uh, one is able to move beyond it uh, which is where the which is where the inherent variation comes from uh, if, you know if the if uh, you know is uh, uh, evolutionary geneticists have found if your gen- if your the genetic diversity within certain populations becomes really narrow, it then affects your ability to to adapt. Uh, mm-hmm. So how does this adaptation occur? Because you're producing an you produce an offspring that's that's let's just call it anomalous, and under normal circumstances that one doesn't do very well because you know. Uh, all the others are doing better than it. Right. Uh, but then right. when the environment changes, uh, then the your normal type is, uh, is is going to struggle, and if you're producing, if you have the inherent variation that you're producing the 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 odd one that's different, that suddenly has the ability to do better in this in this new environment, and this and, and that particular organism or the species, if you will, is is now is 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 moving a little bit towards a, a slightly different. Uh, niche um, and what will hap- often happen is is divergence I mean you know you will have species that are you know that that consist of populations that perhaps abut each other along an elevational gradient mm-hmm. uh, and there might be ones at the top that are slowly adapting to slightly slightly cooler temperatures and the ones at the bottom that are slightly adapting to slightly warmer temperatures and over a million years you might actually find that these these have now become two different species right uh, and have therefore you know their own Hypervolumes. Right, right. Uh, I, mean, I, mean, I, think, I think I really liked uh, uh, your, your drawing attention to uh, research that uh, looks at uh, modifying niches rather than uh, simply being able to adapt to uh, niches. I mean, I think I think that's that's clearly important. When at least uh, at least for somebody like me who is more interested in human ecology than uh, simply uh, uh, ecology, uh, that and that that has actually a, a much longer uh, tradition. I mean, in fact, uh, ecological economists have uh, largely drawn inspiration from uh, Alfred Lotka, right. right? I mean, and and, and his uh, very important distinction between uh, uh, how uh, organisms adapted to niches mm-hmm. uh, before humans uh, came along. Uh, the crucial difference is, uh, in addition to what. Uh, Lotka describes as endosomatic uh, instruments. We also have exosomatic uh, instruments. What does that mean? Uh, means I mean, I mean these are my endosomatic instruments. I mean these these limbs are my endosomatic uh, instrument. But right. uh, we can also uh, uh, fashion tools uh, using uh, materials and resources from the environment, and uh, which which in turn serve as exosomatic uh, instruments. Right. So this this complicates the uh, process of. Uh, uh, niche adaptation and uh, niche, niche modification. So you're able to now uh, really modify the niche at, at faster rates. This also has implications for how you think through what is heritable. 
Mm. Right, because because once you think in terms of exosomatic uh, instruments, uh, that's interesting. The yeah. hereditary mechanism is not limited to uh, only biological system, right? I mean, because I mean, if if uh, we well, let's 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 go back to our uh, automobile example, uh, right? I mean, how does the next generation inherit an automobile, right? I mean, because I mean, that that's an exosomatic uh, instrument. And then, and then that that that's more than a, a biological process, surely. You you mean that in a loose sense, Deepak? Because no, clearly in, the ability a, to a, handle a, an automobile is not genetically transferred or anything, right? No, it's not genetically transferred. I mean, so that I mean that that's why the uh, the her, it, it, it's not heritable in the biological genetic uh, sense. Sure. But but it's a it's a. Uh, Social yeah, there could be social inheritance of sorts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think once you know, if one were to then uh, also uh, bring in Dawkins' idea of memes, you know, there's the heritability in uh, in human social economic systems often happen happens mimetically rather than than genetically. Uh, sure. You know, and uh, I think it's and and I guess for me the interesting question. To, to throw back at you is is you know what what does it you know what does it mean to say that that uh, that that you know a niche is either heritable or has the potential to to become a monopoly in in in, in economic terms rather right. than right. ecological ones uh, for because in, in ecological you know and the reason that I don't dwell much on niche construction at this point is that it's fascinating and it, you're right it, it goes back a, a long way uh, but um, I'm not still convinced that uh, it's a very significant part of what happens in in you know niche space ecologically uh, whereas niche construction is obviously a huge part of what happens in in in, in social uh, economic uh, uh, ecosystems i think that's a very uh, important distinction and then goes back to uh, my uh, earlier point about uh, systems uh, simultaneously being embedded in more than one larger uh, system Right. Right. I mean, so so you're you're, you're basically asking the uh, question. Uh, I mean, how do I look at these multiple niches uh, together? Right. I mean, I mean, it's it's, it's quite. So, what uh, are the strategies at work? What are the strategies that are employed to construct a niche? I mean, is there is there an appropriation of a certain kind of technology? Is there is there like w- what happens? How does one how does one go about theoretically? How do you model niche construction? From 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 totally on a bottoms up basis. So I I'm going to step away from again from the idea of niche construction itself, and I think in evolutionary you know in, in again in uh, uh, one one looks at macro evolution. Uh, one you know there, there's two kinds of of uh, causes for the patterns of diversity one sees in, in mm-hmm. space uh, and the pa- patterns of the diversity being the number of species that you see uh, one is the spatial distribution of of uh, species across the world and the other is the distribution of species within evolutionary lineages or evolutionary uh, parts of the evolutionary tree um, or, or clades uh, and just to give one example uh, two clades that are of about equal age are the uh, um, uh, uh, Tuatara, which is a um, new reptile found in New Zealand, uh, mm-hmm. there are two species in this clade. Uh, birds, which are of about the same uh, age, have eight thousand species in them. Now, why is it that two oh. two, two <laughs> clades? The, uh, you know, and I'm just giving you two stark, you know, sure. contra- you know, 
contrasting examples and there's several in between. Uh, and uh, the way that uh, that uh, one of the one of the factors that there's there's of course a range of potentially uh, you know geographical factors, uh, you know uh, uh, factors such as um, you know. Barriers such as mountains and rivers and seas can separate populations. The question, so, Karthik, is yeah. what is the strategy employed? What what yeah, I'm, what I'm, does one do? I'm I'm coming to this. Yes. So uh, I think the one of the factors that that has been proposed as being very key in these in these processes mm -hmm. is the idea of uh, what are called uh, what are called key innovations. Key uh, innovations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And key innovations could be you know could be for example uh, wings, uh, the the. The advent of wings suddenly made it possible for this entire clade to to Occupy colonize the totally world, different niche. right? Mm. Um, and so, in a sense, uh, uh, and uh, to me, you know, when I first read the term "key innovation" in in ecology, I was like, "Oh, these guys got it from from the you know uh, economics world." No, no, uh, no, it is not. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I think my own favorite example of key innovation is when uh, Homo sapiens uh, finally shed most of the body hair. Right. Uh, so that uh, enough, we, we, yeah. we could start working during the daytime, right? I mean, yeah, right. I mean we, we stopped being entirely nocturnal. So right, uh, right. So in that sense, I think you know the in in the construction of of not just of of in in the construction of not just a species as niche. Is the tendency towards higher efficiency, higher productivity? Is it things of the, that sort or the trade-offs? So I wouldn't say higher. Yeah, well, efficiency is a trade-off. So yes, I mean I think that that organisms are maximizing their trade-off with what? Like what would efficiency trade-off with? Efficiency itself is the trade-off, right? I'm trying to produce the most most number of offspring I can. I mean, in in, in eco ecological and evolutionary terms, that's basically what it comes down to. Uh, the the currency is is offspring, uh, mm. Mm. and in the same way that a that a that a company's you know currency is is profit, mm. Uh, mm. your your currency is offspring. So I, all of my trade-offs are. Uh, and I could do something very minimal. I could stay in a hole my entire life, do nothing, move, move not at all, right. and still have a, a good net benefit in terms of the number of offspring I stay behind. Or I could be a bird that goes, you know, art, you know, Arctic to From Antarctic, one, one pole yeah, to one pole to the other, <laughs> and, and sort of have the same result. Right. Uh, right. So really, you know, uh, if you look across life, there are organisms doing all of these things. And uh, what's the one thing in common that they're doing? Uh, that they're all so the uh, trying to leave the most the offspring behind. How do you how do you carry these ecological concepts into economics, uh, Deepak? In the in the so, more conventional I, 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 sense, I think I think a good uh, starting point to uh, sort of uh, and 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 these I'm 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 only drawing loose parallels here. So I mean I think uh, that's an important uh, footnote to uh, right. begin with. Uh, it's useful to uh, interrogate uh, the notion of efficiency. I mean, mm -hmm. so I mean, what 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 do we actually mean uh, by uh, efficiency, uh, mm -hmm. irrespective of what kind of efficiency you're looking at? Right. I mean, I mean, all the way from uh, at least uh, from the uh, dawn of the uh, pre uh, early modern uh, uh, period, uh, efficiency has meant the following, right? Whether you're your currency is offspring, your currency is money, uh, what have you, you're doing the following three things when you describe efficiency. First, uh, you define a normative benchmark. Right? I mean, and, 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 and make no mistake, it is a normative uh, benchmark. Right? 
uh, economic efficiency is a normative uh, benchmark as much as uh, the efficiency so what, what would a normative benchmark be? For... Or anything. What would an example of a normative benchmark be? Economic efficiency, mm. for example. And Pareto efficiency is uh, a normative benchmark. Right. Uh, efficiency of an idealized uh, steam engine is a normative uh, benchmark. Right. Right. And, right. and, and then... To describe efficiency, what you do next in the second stage is to go out and actually measure the real world. I mean, you, you ask the question, uh, what does a, a real steam engine look like? What does the real uh, economy uh, look like? Right. Right. And any efficiency metric ultimately is a, a norm deviation metric. It measures uh, the deviation of the observed world from the norm that you have uh, set yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one of the most interesting uh, uh, features of modern history has been a successive, and 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 some would argue uh, uh, increasing loss of diversity of these different norms. Right? I mean, we 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 just have only uh, a, a limited set of norms. I mean, I mean that, that, that's been the uh, characteristic of uh, the last, at least the last 150 uh, years or so. Right? So, I mean, we, we, we are focused on uh, very few efficiency metrics. There are all the trade-offs between different efficiency, different kinds of uh, efficiency. Yes, Karthik, uh, right, I was, can I you know, I'll interject, interject yeah, sure. with, a, with an example? So uh, a number of uh, universities in the UK, US institutions, uh, academic institutions, have in the interests of efficiency hired you know, people from the corporate sector, bankers in particular as mm-hmm. you know, vice as chancellors. University and presidents. And so yeah, yeah so. university presidents and so on. And their efficiency metric really is uh, are, are metrics like you know, use of space and, and mm-hmm. you know, uh, the number of papers per the number of people and things like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, and, and, and the academics have gone, you know, kicking and screaming into this enterprise. So, you know, I, was, I walked into University of Exeter some years back and the president was was on about hot desking. He wanted, he wanted every faculty to have a common set of computers that they could walk in and sit down at. And what is not, what is not, uh, you know, uh, counting really are all the other less tangible things that happen in an academic institution. You know, the, the conversations, the you know, the culture, right. all of you know. So uh, one could quantify those if one wanted as well. But in some sense, you're absolutely right that a whole range of you know cultural, uh, you know, uh, social criteria have di- have kind of disappeared from from the you know, from, from those set of metrics that one considers when one, when one talks about efficiency. Right. Uh, and it's a bit scary. I mean, you know... No, it, it, a... it is very scary. I mean, a few months ago, I uh, was uh, engaged in a very serious conversation with a leading scholar of systemic risk. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and uh, one of the points that I uh, made to him was uh, a key driver of systemic risk is a focus on very few narrowly defined uh, efficiency uh, metrics right i mean so when when i mean when what uh, what happens when you uh, like for you gdp would be an efficiency metric gdp uh, gdp per se would not be an efficiency metric but what would be an efficiency metric take take 
the human development index right. for example right. it's an efficiency metric right right and uh, gdp in some sense is also right i mean for i mean at least until uh, the mid 1990s or so starting starting with uh, post world war uh, invention of uh, development uh, economics uh, i think it's familiar to all of us uh, how gdps of different countries were measured i mean if you if you took textbooks uh, from uh, those uh, decades GDP was always expressed as a percentage of American GDP, <laughs> right? So, right. so the American GDP is the norm, and then uh, you, you're essentially trying to measure uh, the deviation, right? So, when the uh, consequence of uh, a very narrow focus on a limited set of uh, norms uh, is that you you necessarily get monocultures of all sorts. And, yeah. and 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 I mean obviously uh, uh, Karthik is going to uh, wear his uh, science hat and uh, beat me down on this, but uh, I'll. So I, you, I, I, I think I think I think that that that's a that's a, a source of a risk as far as I'm concerned. Uh, that's a huge source of when you when you are thinking through systemic risk, uh, an excessive focus on efficiency uh, and the consequent loss of diversity. Uh, is 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 a source of uh, systemic risk. But this is this is what I said with specialist and uh, generalist species. If you know, if you're uh, well, maybe not necessarily with specialists, but if your genetic diversity reduces, uh, and this is what you're saying that in in a sense that the way that you have of of measuring ef efficiency and therefore what you reward within a society is becoming narrower and narrower, then your ability to to deal with change, which is really what you mean when you say risk, declines. And this is what happens in you know you know in a in a biological population as well if your if your the source pool of that variation which is your genetic diversity goes down then your ability to to deal with risk and change declines so in some so sense narrower, it's a it's a perfect it's a right. perfect parallel where you're just treating you know efficient you're treating an efficiency metric as a metric of 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 cultural you know diversity in a sense if i might so kartik the narrower the niche the more specialist the species yeah that would be a that that's, would be a that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's a fair statement that's yeah, yeah. right yeah. right and why don't we ask the other question deepak of why is power centralized in almost all systems in the in the long run well, I, i'm not going to uh, try and even attempt a really uh, long durée uh, sort of explanation so i'll i'll i'll, I'll uh, sort of focus on the modern world right mm -hmm. i mean so let's say uh, starting with uh, the last quarter of the 18th century or so okay right so uh, i mean the pre uh, the the immediate eve of the industrial revolution and then uh, the industrial revolution and the 19th century and the 20th century uh, itself uh, one of one of the things uh, that drives uh this sort of a concentration of power and 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 make no mistake i mean there is uh, a concentration of all sorts of power i mean not not just power measured in uh, kilowatts and uh, megawatts but uh, uh, everywhere else that you see i mean there's a reason why uh, we have mass production mass consumption not to mention mass destruction uh, mass transport mass communication you you want to step back and wonder uh, why is this all is there a link between all of this there is there is i mean i'd like to argue uh, the link is uh, somewhat accidental i mean i, I mean I, i'm not going to go into uh, uh, the history uh, uh, so much but we can uh, discuss if it uh, comes up uh, later uh, is a commitment to a certain kind of efficiency metric 
mm-hmm. right? And and in the uh, early 19th uh, century, uh, thermodynamics and economics sort of co-evolved. I mean, I mean, I mean and, and that's that's now very well established. I mean, I mean, this this is not some uh, uh, random uh, statement that I'm making. I mean, sure. uh, two two decades of very rigorous uh, scholarship. Uh, has established how uh, these two disciplines were essentially uh, borrowing tools from uh, one another. Sure. Right? sure. And, uh, but it's not just a measurement early... question, oh, right? Sorry. It's not just a measurement question, Deepak. It's not just a question of obsession about one efficiency metric. The question simply is that why do systems tend towards um, centralized configurations, and which which is in a way asking the monopoly question in a sense. Well, at least at least at least in uh, the human systems, the kinds of centralization that you've seen mm-hmm. uh, in 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 the industrial world is without any precedent in the pre-industrial uh, uh, world. I mean, make no uh, mistake uh, about it, mm-hmm. right? And 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 uh, that. Uh, that 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 goes to uh, those crucial uh, decades uh, at at the uh, beginning of the uh, industrial age when both uh, thermodynamics as we understand today and uh, economics as we understand today uh, uh, come to the fore. Uh, take take thermodynamic uh, efficiency, right? Uh, for the large. Uh, for for the most part, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, and, and I've obviously uh, stripped this of uh, very uh, important uh, details. Uh, we uh, are focused on uh, what uh, engineers call uh, Carnot efficiency. Okay. Right. And what that means is uh, to be able to produce uh, something more efficiently. You try and organize your production processes mm-hmm. across higher and higher temperature gradients, mm-hmm. right? and I'm I'm using temperature uh, within code, so I mean you can you can you can you work can replace with, it with anything. you can work with other uh, gradients uh, as well. This made perfect sense. So by gradient, sense. you simply mean range, Deepak. Sorry, oh, you simply no, mean no, range. No, by, by gradient, I simply mean uh, the temperature range. Right, right, right. Uh, and uh, this happens at a particular historical juncture. Mm-hmm. And then that juncture is the movement away from uh, solar radiation being the primary motor of human societies uh, to buried sunshine being the primary motor of uh, fossil human, fuels. Uh, fossil fuel, uh, basically the transition from uh, charcoal to coal. Mining the stock. Right. So, so, so that we are now dependent on stocks of buried sunshine rather than flows over which you don't have any control. Right. right? I mean, you and I, uh, human agency cannot control uh, the rate at which uh, solar insulation uh, reaches the uh, surface of Earth. Right. And and during this transition, a particular form of efficiency metric made perfect sense. Right. I mean, when, when Carnot efficiency is actually very useful. I mean, if, if you, if you uh, wanted to work with uh, stocks rather than uh, solar flows. This is a- essentially uh, the efficiency metric that you want to uh, work with. I mean, this is how you would want to design your steam engine. But this has consequences uh, for society and polity, and certainly uh, the economy and for the ecosystem uh, at large. Because and and, and 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 ecosystem at large. I mean, I mean, I mean because in will, a sense, we're monopolizing those fields. That will take us back into yeah. uh, how you've been reconstructing uh, your niches, how humans have been reconstructing. So are, their, are, 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 are all monopolies bad? No, 
No. So what, uh, but, what but, is a good but monopoly? Even before we get there, let's let's uh, complete our sure. uh, discussion on uh, why this leads to a monopoly. Okay. And and and, and that that if you now wanted to operate and produce across large temperature uh, gradients okay uh, you you need to necessarily centralize uh, production and even there's a reason why uh, your car is not as efficient as a power plant right because it's it, i mean i mean you, you can operate at i mean there, there's a minimum scale uh, needed to operate at a certain uh, temperature so in a way what uh, you're saying deepak is that the larger the scale the greater the tendency towards centralization Correct. I mean, I mean, centralization is a, a necessary precondition for, for efficiency. That's for, for efficiency uh, yeah. measured the Carnot uh, way. Right. 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 And, and and that that has political economy uh, consequences. Right. Right. I mean, for example, uh, I'm and I'm, I'm that's very really interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, today, uh, a, a hand spun, hand woven uh, cotton uh, uh, khadi, shirt. Let's call it khadi. Khadi, khadi uh, uh, shirt. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, but a trouser bought from. Uh, Uh, a store uh, down the road. It was probably uh, made in Vietnam with cotton grown in Egypt, and I uh, bought it in US, etc. But this is actually more efficient. My trouser is more efficient. I mean, if you looked at the energy that went into producing a square yard of cloth, uh, this is probably uh, more, more efficient. More efficient than the khadi. But uh, from than khadi, but that that's only a efficiency metric. I mean, I mean, I mean, you 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 could you could uh, look at this problem through uh, other efficiency uh, metrics as well. So what are good monopolies? One word answer to that: democracy <laughs> is a is a is a good monopoly. I mean, a monopoly of what is democracy? A monopoly uh, of democracy is a monopoly of a particular ideology. that you know of whatever it you know of of diversity democracy is is a is a is an ideology of diversity that i want you know everybody's opinion counts and i think it would be great if that were an even bigger monopoly than it and 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 sorry to use the word but i'm using it with quotes if it were an even efficient more efficient monopoly than it is today mm. uh you know and i but i just wanted to go back to you know one point that you made and i think this you know that you use the you use the notion of thermodynamics and i think within the embedded within the notion of thermodynamics is the idea of entropy right. and all ecological systems are are organizing to to you know are your your lower energy goes to lower, lower the entropy yeah. and that's what you know social organization is about as well i mean it's about lowering you know right. efficiency is about lowering entropy in a system and i actually haven't read any of that literature but but my standard argument for why india is harder to you know uh get to bring about change in india than to bring about change in norway is that as this much higher entropy in the system oh, than absolutely. in norway yeah. so yeah. that's you know i yeah. i mean uh it seems intuitively you know um obvious and i was perhaps this is why i mean when as late as in the 1930s uh somebody Like Winston Churchill could argue, I mean, India is as much a nation as Equator is a nation, right? I mean, because I mean, how do you? Uh, I mean, in terms of if you used the entropic lens to uh, sort of quantify uh, society, I'm sure. Are there are there instances in ecology, Karthik, of monopolies being challenged successfully? Um, it's uh, yes at uh, depending on how how you look at it at a macro evolutionary scale i would say that that uh, reptiles you know the uh, in um, layman terms dinosaurs oh. had had a monopoly of uh, wasn't you know of animal you know uh, biomass perhaps sure. in uh, during a certain period in the history uh, now that was that through a, a chance event uh, was then uh you know a a niche that that became occupied largely by 
um, you know, the, uh, the the group that benefited the most from the decline or the disappearance of dinosaurs were, were mammals. Mm. Right, uh, mm. uh, and there's different. You know, you know, one can think of it in terms of you know. Is the, again, I get, I struggle because I, I'm thinking along three to f- or five different axes. I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, number of individuals. Is it a monopoly in terms of number of individuals, or is it biomass? Is it is it space in our thought? I would say that mammals occupy a monopoly in human perspective. You know, human thought about about conservation and it's something that I've objected to very strongly. Sure. I mean, my my four-year-old daughter can probably name uh, 15 animals, uh, 14 of them mammals. Exactly. So, so, there, there is a, so, so mammals yeah. are monopolizing our consciousness. More mammals have monopolized our consciousness in conservation <laughs> and some of us are fighting very hard to you know, <laughs> knock them down. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. there's, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. No, I mean, there are parallels in uh, human history too. I mean, the, the sort of transition that I uh, talked about a little while ago. I mean, this sort of a mass production, mass consumption based society uh, in the longitudinal history is very, very recent. So, right? what so, happens in the. Uh, let's ask a different so question. I mean, if you looked at the yeah. entire human history, uh, this, is, this is just a blink. Yeah. Right. Let's so, ask a different question, Karthik. What happens in the very long run, over millions of years, over several reproductive, genetic uh, inheritance cycles? Is the tendency towards um, homogenization or is the tendency towards heterogenization? Um, if you know what I mean. Are there more and more niches? Are there more and more species? Are there more and more special uh, habitats as opposed to uh, some kind of a flattening in the very long run? I would, I, you know, I would argue that that there is, that these are counteracting forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, there's something in particular that happens at a species boundary. Mm-hmm. Within species boundaries, what is a species? So, boundary? species boundaries in the sense that you know what differentiates one species from another. Uh, the fact that there is gene flow within a species, right. or, or within a population, let's say, right. uh, gene flow is a homogenizing mechanism. Right. Correct. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but between those populations or species. Uh, they may be, you know, they're they're uh, either for for geographic, environmental, or you know, biotic reasons. Mm-hmm. There's uh, p- probably stronger movement towards heterogenization. It could be because of of random change, or it could be because of of change of of uh, change that's selected by evolutionary processes. So, what's the answer to it factually? Like over the last uh, one billion years, or whatever, pick a time period. Have the number of species increased or not? Oh yeah, that could be I one mean, so, metric. Of yeah, so it's it. uh, you know uh, the, there was a uh, there was an explosion in, in the early period of, of uh, Cambrian of explosion, the, the Cambrian explosion, and uh, uh, Stephen Jay Gould uh, wrote a wrote a chapter about it where he you know he uh, drew a sigmoid curve and right. he said you know was this just a function of this being the the you know the mm-hmm. the early mm-hmm. part of the curve and what what I really liked about it was uh, and of course his wife came up with all the titles of his chapters and uh, <laughs> the chapter title is was the Cambrian explosion a sigmoid fraud so you know and um, right. also sort of always evokes in me uh, the idea that so to answer your question yes there have been big leaps in, in history where uh, and we don't know whether but these why are why do they cluster together? well uh, Dawkins would argue that they don't cluster uh, that these are you know that the, the uh, tree of life is a you know a clumpy gappy crooked jagged line and some of these uh Big leaps appear because we haven't, we, we don't have, you know, we don't have the the true smooth line. Uh, 
and so I, I, I remain unconvinced that 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 uh, you know that what Gould calls punctuated equilibrium uh, defines that that tree of life. I'm, I'm you know, I'm I'm one of the uh, you know, ones that that believe that it's it's you know. It's smooth with 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 catastrophic events. Yes, you know there certainly are catastrophic events like the extinction of the dinosaurs and you know uh, other sort of which could simply be outcome of accidents. Absolutely, there yeah. there there are there there are accidents in 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 history. Uh, but to answer your question, yes, there there has been um, expansion in. There's been uh, speciation where species appear, and there's been extinction where species disappear. Both are natural processes. Right. But if one looks at it as a whole, uh, at that macroevolutionary scale, there has been uh, extraordinary diversification of life on Earth. Uh, some some would argue that that the the big leaps happened then, and if one looks at the last 400 million years or the last 200 million years, you know, there's been as much extinction as there has been, you know, diversification and speciation. So s the net is not really a, a right. huge expansion of the number of species. But if one looked at it from the origins of life on Earth, uh, certainly yes. Right. What, what about the same question in the economic sphere, um, Deepak? Is the, is the tendency, for example, do monopolies have a good future of any of any sort? It could be companies and industries, could be other sorts of monopolies. I mean, are monopolies intrinsically unstable in the very, very long run? Something gives way and they, they collapse into themselves. To answer this question, you want to go back to uh, where we started, mm -hmm. uh, which is to uh, ask the question, why is something a monopoly? Yeah. Right. I mean, if you, if you uh, I mean, the easy way to uh, look at it, I mean, without reference to a larger uh, subsystem, is to say, uh, well, uh, in, in in very narrow economic terms, something is a monopoly if you're the uh, only uh, player in town. Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, I, I, I think, I think, I think that's that's the easy, trivial uh, yeah. part of what what a monopoly is. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I am more interested in looking at monopolies. Uh, in relationship to our primary conversation today about niches, right? Correct. Right? I mean, so I mean, what's what's the relationship between uh, niches and uh, monopoly? So the, the sort of monopolies we have today, right? And it, it it's hard to answer your question precisely because we have great set of tools to modify our niches. I mean, in a sense, uh, what do you mean, I mean human that? human uh, beings as a, as a species, right? And there's a there's a new and uh, in some ways interesting. I mean, though uh, uh, I am not entirely uh, convinced, and at times have been a, a critique uh, too of the so-called big history movement, right? I mean, trying to understand history all the way from uh, the Big Bang to the uh, uh, present. Uh, period, uh, but one of the points that uh, they do make, mm -hmm. I mean that which which the big history uh, sort of movement makes, and and, and it's a that's a useful point to understand uh, and, and even be able to uh, think through your uh, question uh, is to uh, ask how have uh, different apex species, right? I mean, I mean, I mean considering considering we we are we are at the top of. Uh, uh, the species uh, tree today uh, modified uh, their environment, right? And 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 and, 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 and it's, it's it's a hard question. I mean, that, I mean even very factually uh, uh, speaking, right? Uh, we we might not have modified uh, the uh, environment 
uh, in, in, in ways, say, when uh, bacteria first appear and then uh, results in uh, oxygen building up in the uh, atmosphere, so on and so forth. So, I mean, it, it, it's not entirely clear. But purely from the standpoint of the apex species, it is a good idea to monopolize, isn't it? Uh, so it's a good idea. The, and this was a thought that was crossing my mind earlier about why monopolies come about. And I think monopolies come about because within that particular context, there are positive feedback loops. Mm. Uh, there are, as you grow, the conditions for your growth become better and better and better. Now, in most ecological systems, you'll eventually hit a you'll hit a negative feedback at some point. Uh, humans aren't the only, uh, animals are that not the only system that modify their ecosystems ecosystem. to their own detriment. Sure. So, you know... Uh, uh, green sea turtles, you know, uh, which are one of the species that I work on, right. uh, are you know there've been papers published recently about how greatly they modify ecosystems uh, and wipe wipe them out. Uh, and, wipe themselves out. And well, they start out by wiping out the the, the seagrass pastures that they feed on, mm -hmm. and they'll move to other pastures, and they'll move to other pastures, and you know, uh, until until a point where. Uh, the, so they're the destroying their own habitat. The point where, yeah, where where you know it affects. So they they hit a they hit a negative feedback loop at some stage. And I mean, this is just one example, but there's any any so number any of number of examples. Yeah. Even the, but the fundamental point is that any normative assessment of a monopoly mm -hmm. uh, requires you to look at monopoly uh, against another larger system. Right? I mean, you 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 cannot uh, look at uh, the isolation. economy independent of some other system right. that, that contains and uh, sustains it. Right? I mean, you you cannot look at uh, is green turtle uh, without reference to uh, the ecosystem that supports uh, the uh, turtle population. Uh, and the, the point is, uh, you cannot even begin to uh, describe monopolies. In, in any uh, meaningful, non-trivial ways. And, 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 and from my perspective, uh, the current economist's description of monopoly is just describing a distribution. So last right? question, I mean, Karthik, last question. In the long run, what is a better strategy to try and construct a niche? And I know we are, I'm ascribing a sense of agency to it, but uh, or to try and monopolize in the ecosystem you live in from a, from a very, very, from a super long run standpoint. If you know what I mean, like have, have there been species and organisms which have inhabited small niches or you know small or large? One can pick a word, as opposed to let's say somebody like a dinosaur or whatever, which which ended up monopolizing vast uh, tracts of land, habitat, biomass, and so on. So, what is a better strategy in the long run? And maybe there is no you know, my, clear answer. My uncle once. Uh said, I, I describe scientists as however people. Because you'll say, uh, this, you know, uh, X is true, however, you know. Which is what you say and, for uh, economists. There's right, no economists, economists with one hand. Economists talk about on the one hand and, and on, on the other, other hand, hand right? Exactly. So people are always demanding, hell, yeah. give me a one-handed economist. So it looks yeah, like right, the exactly, answer is yeah. both. It looks like yeah, the... Yeah, well, I, I think it's, uh, I, I, you know, it, it goes right back to the beginning of what, you know, what Deepak said. Right. It really depends on 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 b and as b changes a needs to you know i'm going to use the word adapt right. uh, and that that adaptation itself may involve construction right um, right right terrific i think that's a good note to end this on and thanks to both of you for making it we look thank forward you. to having you soon again thank you, thank you take very care much.